0: Few years ago, actually, it's been quite a few years ago now. um, I was watching the Discovery Channel, and they had this uh, whole deal on the Hudson Valley, the Hudson River, and the Hudson Valley, and all the history of the river. And uh, I uh, I talked to Pam about this because she's from that area, and uh, she grew up in just north of Poughkeepsie, New York, and and we decided that we would take a family vacation up the Hudson and it was so much fun. Uh, we, we just had a blast. What we did, we drove to Poughkeepsie and the Rhinebeck area, went through a couple mansions there and then we got on Amtrak and we just headed north and it was one of those deals where you could get off the train at any time you want and spend a couple of days in certain places so we had mapped out some things that we wanted to see and do and, and uh, it was just, it was such a great time. And we we stopped at places like Lake George and Lake Placid. We went all the way to Plattsburgh, which is right on the Canadian border, took a detour, got on a ferry and went over to Burlington, Vermont, uh, to uh, see a couple hippies, Ben and Jerry, and then we got back and then came back down. And, and I'm telling you that that is one of the most scenic, beautiful rivers in the world. And the... Um, They call it the Rhine of the Americas because it is such a beautiful river. But there are some things that I I learned about the Hudson River that I didn't know. It's one of the very few rivers in the nation, uh, actually in the world, that actually flows both ways. There are times when the river flows from the south to the north, and there are other times when it flows from the north to the south. And what happens is the the tide from the Atlantic comes in around New York, around the islands, and just pushes its way from the south up, and it it brings salt water and brackish water into New York as high as Troy, and then after the tide starts to let let go from the Adirondacks, the natural flow of the river comes from the north to south, and so it kind of goes both ways, and And it's going to represent something that I want to talk about today. Tony Evans uh, talks about two stories focused on the Hudson River. And one of these stories you're going to recognize, uh, one is a story of life, uh, where the river's flowing the right way, and the other is one that is not a story of life. It's a story of tragedy. And the first one, you'll know, uh, it happened in 2009. Most of you were cognizant of what was happening in 2009. And um, you'll remember that uh, a US Airways captain, Captain, uh, what was his, what was the guy's name? It starts with an S. Yeah, that guy. Well, um, Sullenberger, right? Captain Sullenberger. I've really practiced this. Um, Captain Sullenberger, he was about a, I think he'd been flying for like 30 years. He studied his his trade. He was. He knew how to handle difficult situations. He had studied flight safety, how, how to handle uh, challenges and, and problems with airplanes. And so what he, what he did is he took off from LaGuardia, and I remember that he flew right into a flock of Canada geese. And these geese went into a couple of the engines, and uh, over just a period of moments, two of the engines on this plane were gone. They just were totally disabled. And so he tries to turn around, circle back to get to LaGuardia, realizes he can't make it, and he literally lands this plane on the river. He's got 155 people in the plane, and he masterfully figures out how to put this plane down in the Hudson. And it's called the miracle of the Hudson. It, it, he just lands it and all the people get out on the, on the wings of the plane or anywhere that they could outside of the plane until these rescue boats could come and pick people up. And there were people in private boats coming out and picking people off of the wings and out of the water. And it was an amazing thing. Right before... <clears throat> Captain Sullenberger got off the, the, the plane, he walked the entire length of the interior of the plane in waist-high water to make sure nobody was left in the plane. And then he finally disembarked from the plane before, uh, before it went under. And it was an amazing story, amazing situation. And he, um, uh, the, the youngest child that was saved in that, uh, that deal was nine months old, a nine-month-old baby boy. Who today is, is, what, seven years old, hopefully. And uh, it was just a, a, a great story. Two years later, Evans goes on to tell the story of another happening in the Hudson. The young mom, 25 years of age, she had four children already uh, by two different men who both abandoned their family. And one of the, the, the father of the three, of the youngest children, uh, literally had he had um, was taking care of one of the children uh, over a weekend, uh, a three-year-old boy, and it was February in New York. And this three-year-old boy walked out of the house downtown, New York, while his father was getting high and was dripping wet. And all he had on was a diaper. He was found about a mile, mile and a half from his home. And so <clears throat> this was a mess. You can already see this, this was not a healthy situation. The, um, that father was put in jail uh, for a combination of child negligence and the fact that he hadn't been paying child support. He got out of jail one day, and he comes to the house where the mother of these children are living, and he tries to beat the door down, uh, just screaming, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, to the, to the mom. And um, he was arrested and, and taken away that day, but the mom, out of fear and out of just total helplessness, put her four children in a van, and she said, if I'm going to die I'm not leaving you here with them. You're going to die with me. And she drove her van into the Hudson River. Her oldest son, the only one who survived, he somehow got out of the window of the van and escaped and was pulled out of the Hudson, which is where they found out what happened. And and he told the story to the police. Evans talks about this being the tragedy on the Hudson. And he says... 155 people survived a crash landing on the Hudson because one man operated with responsibility in his realm. Four people died in the icy grip of the same river because one man, or perhaps several, did not. You know, the like I shared with you, the Hudson kind of runs in two different directions, and in, in a way, that's a picture of how life is sometimes, and and, and life can, you know, it, it has a way of working both ways. It can work as, as something that is life-giving or something that is not. And much of the way of life, the way it flows, depends on whether a man is a kingdom man, a godly man, who responsibly leads according to God's word, or he is not. And so today, I'm going to be talking about what, is a kingdom man. We're gonna, I, I want to take this apart a little bit. And I want you guys especially, I want you to take notes. I want you to write some stuff down because either you need it in your life or you need to lead other men who need your help. And so I want you to write these things down because they're very elementary, but they're extremely important. And something I want you to know the, right off the bat, getting right out of the gate, it's this. God has created every man to be a leader. Every man, some of you don't think of yourselves as a leader, but I want you to tell you, I want to tell you, just because you are a man, you you could be a young man, you could be a student, um, or whoever you are, guys, God has created you to be a leader. This was set in Genesis chapter two. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, where when God created man, he created him to lead and to rule, to be responsible for the earth. That has not changed. We were created in this image, in God's image, with this leadership mandate. So every man is to be a leader. As a man, you are ultimately responsible for those within your domain. You get to lead those in your care to a place of safety or chaos, and you choose. It's up to you. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. A man's ability to lead is based in his obedience. And beside of that, write this out because I meant to put these words in there as well. A man's ability to lead is based in his obedience to God's word. Let me say it again. A man's ability to lead is based in his obedience to God's word. Let's take a look at something. I'm reading reading
1: Abraham, right? Abraham. There's a lot of blessings of Abraham. You got to read up on this, right? Because I wanted to know. So I'm reading. And first of all, I found out that his name used to be Abram. right? And then one day, God changed his name to Abraham and told him to go home and circumcise his entire household, even the servants. And then in verse 23, it says, and he went home that very same day and did it. It's like, man, that's obedience. Cuz I don't know if I could have been a servant. I mean, I'm just saying I would have had a couple questions first. <laughs> wait a minute, wait, wait. Abraham? Is that how you say it now? Okay, wait, wait. Put the flint rock down for a minute. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. What exactly did God say? His words, please. Okay, okay. Circumcised in the
0: flesh of the foreskin. Okay. You sure he didn't say your skin? I don't even know where to go after that. Um, so I'm going to read Psalm 128 because this is kind of a theme scripture for this whole kingdom year that we're spending. Uh, we taught on this the very first week that we introduced... Uh, the year of the kingdom, it starts like this. It says, how joyful. By the way, this is a psalmist writing to men. He says, how joyful are those who fear the Lord. We've talked about that word fear and fearing the Lord. What does it mean? It means you take God seriously. It doesn't, it's not like being scared of cat It's like taking God seriously. He is number one. So he says, how joyful are those who take God seriously, all who follow his ways. Then it goes on to tell you what you get by doing that. You'll enjoy the fruit of your labor, how joyful, some versions say happy, how joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessing for the guys who take God seriously. That's the blessing that God pours out on us. Now, what I want to do is kind of give you a picture that would help define what a kingdom man looks like. A kingdom man is the kind of man that when his feet hit the floor each morning, the devil says, oh crap, he's up. A kingdom man understands that God never said a godly life would be easy, he just said it would be worth it. A kingdom man, get this, a kingdom man zeroes in on one purpose and one purpose only, advancing the kingdom for the betterment of those within it, which glorifies the king. And he will pursue this at whatever personal cost. Does that sound like something that is totally contrary to our culture today? Because we're taught to pursue our own kingdom our own excitement, our own build our own joy, make ourselves happy ourselves. But a kingdom man doesn't live that way. A kingdom man lives totally for the benefit of others and for God's kingdom and God to be glorified. Men, you're in a battle. You're in a war. The stakes of this war and its casualties are higher than a check mark in the win or loss column. Lives will be lost, eternities will be shaped, destinies will either be discovered or dismissed, dreams will be attained or relinquished. Jesus has not asked you to be a fan. He has plenty of fans already. No fan ever set the stage for a battle to be won. Jesus wants men who will carry out his agenda, governance, and guidelines in a world that is in crisis. That's our mandate for every man, every man, I want to read a passage of scripture that we're gonna just spend most of our time in today. And it's in the Old Testament, and I wanted to just preface this with, with this thought. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament, uh, especially in, in Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and Judges and, and all the way through first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, that when you read them, they're kind of strange. Sometimes they're brutal. Sometimes they're they're just like, why would God do that? Or why would God? I mean, we're looking at it from the you know our, our 21st century vantage point. So so we have a you know kind of a a shallow way of looking at things sometimes because we don't know what has come behind or before us that brought us to this point today. In the Bible, there's some things that take place. And I believe, you know, I think I've told you this many times, the Old Testament is a series of stories and pictures that show us what God wants to communicate to us in the New Testament. And so the story that I'm going to share with you today is a brutal story. It's a painful story, but it has a lot to do with where we live today. So it's a story, it's a story found in the book of Joshua, it starts, the story starts in chapter 6. I'm not going to read that, but you know this story well. It's a story of, of Joshua finally bringing the Israelites into the Promised Land, and the first battle, the first enemy that they encounter is a city called Jericho. And so you've heard this story. You've sung the song, perhaps, where Joshua had the people of Israel just every day for seven days circle the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, after they had circled the city, they blew horns, they screamed, they yelled, they called out to God, and literally the walls of that city just caved in, and they destroyed everybody in the city except for uh, the house of Rahab. We've talked about that story many times. And so this was a great victory. It It was the first foray of the Israelites into the Promised Land. It was... Uh, God saying to the rest of the Canaanites the people who were not Israelites I am here my people are here and I am God I am large I'm in charge and Joshua is your is their leader and you need to fear him and that's exactly what was going through the earth it was there was such fear there was such trepidation among all the Canaanites because they knew that God had done something incredible in Jericho they knew that 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 Joshua and the people of Israel had the favor of a God they knew nothing about, and they were scared. And so the next group of people that was on the radar for the Israelites to conquer, it was the next closest enemy, was a small city called Ai. And so Joshua sent some spies to Ai to spy the thing out and see what they needed to do to win that battle. And the spies came back and said, Joshua, this is a small city. They're not prepared for anything. We can easily take this with 3,000 men. Now, 3,000 was kind of overkill for what needed to be done there, but, but that's what they did. So they sent 3,000 men to Ai. They surprised them But then they got surprised because the city of Ai was a little more prepared than they thought, and they just beat the tar out of the Israelites, and they chased them out of the city, and 36 Israelites were killed. And all of a sudden, all of this notorious great leadership and and fear that was all across the land dissipated, and the people were thinking, oh, the Israelites are vulnerable, oh, They're not as strong as we thought they were. Whoa, this is going to be easier. We can take care of the... I mean, it just took the foundation out of this whole plan that God had. And so we open up the story here with Joshua on his face, angry at God, embarrassed, just hurt. He lost 36 of his valiant warriors, and he's crying out to God, why did you do this? Why did you let this happen? What to, what what made you do this, God? And so here's God's response. Joshua 7 verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, "Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this?" And then he begins to tell him what was happening. He says, "Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they've not only stolen them, but they have lied about it and hidden the things among their belongings. See, God had this deal worked out with Joshua that everything that was taken from Ai would go to God. It would go to building his, his, uh, all the stuff that, was, that they were to put together for the day when they would build the temple. All of this belonged to God. Everything was his. And he says, somebody stole it. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies and defeat. For now, Israel itself has been set apart, not for winning, but set apart for destruction. God says, I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies. Guys, you need to catch this, okay? Think about what this might mean. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from you. In the morning, you must present yourselves by tribes, and the Lord will point out the tribe to which the guilty man belongs. That tribe must come forward with its clans and the Lord will point out the guilty clan. That clan will then come forward and the Lord will point out the guilty family. Finally, each member of the guilty family must come forward one by one. The one who has stolen what was set apart for destruction will himself be burned with fire, check this out, along with everything he has for he has broken the covenant of the Lord and has done a horrible thing in Israel. Now, it's hard for us in our culture to understand the severity of this. So what I want you to do is be willing to let a little bit of that go as you transfer that into your world today. Don't get hung up on an Old Testament picture of a New Testament prophecy. Early the next morning, Joshua brought the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Judah was singled out. Remember, there were 12 tribes, and so God indicated, oh, this is the tribe of Judah. Interestingly enough, Jesus was a descendant of that tribe. Then the clans of Judah came forward, and the clan of Zerah was singled out. Then the families of Zerah came forward, and the family of Zimri was singled out. Every member of Zimri's family was brought forward person by person, and a man by the name of Achan was singled out. Here we get to the problem. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, so you can already tell there's drama here. It wasn't like, you jerk. It was my son. It was, this is painful, emotionally painful. My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me, what you have done. Don't hide it from me. So Achan replied. Here's what he said. It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he says some things here that you need to grasp, guys. Among the plunder. I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. They are hidden in the ground beneath my tent, with the silver buried deeper than the rest. Couple phrases that give an indicator of the things that men deal with and many times fail at. So I want to talk about those. There are a couple words here. He said, I saw and I wanted them. Write this down, guys. That's called lust. I saw and I wanted them. That's called lust. It's the stuff that we want. That we know we're not to have. He uses another word in here. He says, "Among the plunder, the plunder I want you to write beside of that, is the devoted, the devoted. These are the things that belong to God. All through this story, I read many times, God said, "This was mine. This was my stuff." I This was to be my treasure. It wasn't to be your treasure. So here's a guy who took, he called it plunder, but it was stuff that belonged to God. There are things in our lives that are to belong to God, and we take them ourselves. And guys... I'm going to get really practical with some things right now because I want you to understand this. This is, this is not a scolding. This is, I'm trying to give you some things here that will really change your life. And in a moment, I'll tell you why that's so important. But there are some things that belong to God. The Bible teaches us, for instance, that the Sabbath belongs to God. The Sabbath is for us. It's for our spiritual renewal. Men... Let me just just say this, if you guys, some of you aren't married, I want you to to park this inside, and for those of you who are, I want you to understand this in a real way. You are spiritually responsible for your family. If you're not married, you get married one day, you are going to be spiritually responsible for your family. I don't have spiritual responsibility for your family, guys. You do. And so one of the things that I will challenge you with, and it won't all happen today, but I'm going to challenge you with is is just bringing your family to Zion. In Psalm 128, it talks about Zion. It's talking about the church. You lead the way. That's your job. Nobody else's. You lead the way to the church. We talk a lot about tithing and giving to God. Giving to God means something belongs to Him. And if we're not tithing and giving to God, we can call that plunder. You see where that's going? Those are just a couple of quick examples. The list goes on and on, and it's not like a list you have to check off. It's it's stuff that God's word shows you. And guys, you gotta step to the plate. You gotta you gotta bring it up a few notches because God is trying to teach you how to live a life that is amazing and full of God's blessing. He says one other thing here that we really need to understand. He says, they are hidden in the ground beneath my tent. In other words, I thought I could get away with it. I didn't think anybody would know We've talked about that before, and this may or may not be in your notes. That's that's when we think we can sin in a vacuum. We can do it and nobody knows. And you know what? There's some truth to that. There's some truth to the fact that maybe nobody sees your sin. But don't get confused with them seeing and knowing. Because if your life is filled with hidden Sin, hidden things that are not godly, they come out in ways that you cannot prevent. It comes out in the way you lead your family. It comes out in your speech. It comes out in the product that you're creating because you don't have the blessing of God in your life. You cannot hide things from God. It is totally impossible. You do not sin in a vacuum. Verse 22. So Joshua set some men to make a search. They ran to the tent and found the stolen goods hidden there, just as Achan had said, with the silver buried beneath the rest. They took the things from the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and they laid them on the ground in the presence of the Lord. Then Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, tent, and everything they had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Then Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And then the most horrible scene. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies. They piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. And that is why this place has been called the Valley of Trouble ever since. So the Lord was no longer angry. I can't imagine such a thing. Can you imagine as a father and as a husband and you're called in front of the entire assembly of Israel and they begin to stone your family. As a father, you would freak out. You would scream, no, stop. It's not their fault. It's my fault. Just stone me. Kill me. And you try to guard your wife or a daughter or a son and your heart is breaking and the stones keep coming and a child cries out, Daddy, what have you done? What have you done? Until everything is gone. I've read that passage so many times and I keep coming to the same question that I'm going to give to you guys, and it's this. What do we do with this? What do we do with this story? This isn't just historic reading that is a story. There is something for guys to learn here that is incredible. There is something for husbands and fathers to learn. In Psalm 128, coming back to the The scripture, oh wow, that's just for effect. Make sure you're awake. Psalm 128, it comes back to this idea of blessing. It comes back to this this thing, and I want you to see this because it all ties together. Not only does God bless us when we take him seriously, men, but he makes us a conduit for blessing our family. This cannot be done any other way. It comes from a man. It comes from a leader who is living his life obediently before God and through that vessel, it's spread out. Now for those of you women who are left... Your husband deserted you. Your husband has left you with children. That's where the church steps in and brings to you the blessing that you cannot provide yourself to your family. So God has made a way for you not to be left in the dark. But guys, as husbands, as fathers, you hold the key to the blessing for your family For those of you have who have sons dads you know what your son wants most from you he wants and longs for the blessing the blessing is when a father puts his hand on his son and transmits transfers the benefits of the father now that's a literal picture, but here's how it works in our lives. It's the blessing means that you speak the future into your sons. It means that you look at your sons and you give them life for the future. You are the ones who do that. It's not from, supposed to come from the moms. It's not supposed to come from the church, although God has made a way for that. But dads, it's to come from you. You are to be the leader and bless your sons and give them a godly future. Understand, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about forever. And your son, whether you know it or not, longs for the blessing. He longs for the blessing. You know what your daughters long for? And what they will ultimately long for, they long for a boy who has received the blessing. Unfortunately, we have a generation of unblessed men. We have so many people in our church, your first generation believers, many of you. And that was really kind of the goal of why we started the church. We, we hope to reach lost people and turn them into Christ followers. And for many of you, you're the first generation and you were unblessed in your life. I've heard your stories. I've heard you talk about what you didn't have and what you were not given. And so you haven't learned maybe how to move from a man-centered life to a God-centered life and So that's why we're here, and you get to put your mark in the sand, and you need to change some things, and you can change history. My grandfather was the first man in our family to put a mark in the sand and say no more of where I came from. It's going to be a new day, and it has now flowed down four generations. A kingdom man lives in such a way that the next generation says, I want that. I want what you have. So I'm just gonna give you two things today. I don't think these are in your notes and I just want you to listen because it's gonna be easy to remember. Um, Number one, it begins with a decision. Guys, you decide. You decide how it's gonna be. You decide what the family's gonna look like. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must first turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In other words, he's saying, you say no to yourselves, you die to your own ways, and you decide to follow Jesus. You decide to give him not just Sunday mornings or not just a few moments, but you give him your life. And here's the second thing, and, and, and that's just a decision, guys. That's between you and God, and you decide. Remember, I can't change this. You're the only one that can choose, so the decision's yours. Here's the second thing, and it's what we can do. Hebrews twelve or 10, 23 says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So here's how I practically want to play this one out. Guys, we need each other. We can't grow by ourselves. We can make a decision, but if we're left out there at an island, we're gonna fail. So, God gave us this passage in Hebrews so we could come together, we could grow. So here's what I want. I want at least five men, and I want you to be dads, at least five dads, to join with me, and if we get 10, that's even better, but I only need five more to join me, and in August, the 21st of August, we're going to start a new series of life groups, and um, it's our fall semester and I want to have five guys join me, and we're going to lead a life group, five different ones, six different ones, called the Kingdom Man. Now, we just had one group, I think, the last semester that Steve Stratton taught, and I need to go get Steve and make him one of the five other guys because we had a couple guys do this. But here's what I want to do. I want 10 or 12 guys in every one of these groups, and we're going to have these groups all over the calendar throughout the week and early morning and nighttime and weekends and weekdays. We're going to make it so nobody has an excuse. And guys, I want all of you, if I can get 60 guys to just commit to learning what it means to be a kingdom man. It's gonna turn our world upside down. It's gonna turn this church upside down. It's gonna be a blessing to God's kingdom and the Destiny Church. So, very practical way of doing this. If you wanna be one of those leaders, I just want you to put something on your C-card, tell me, email me, text me, whatever. Say, hey, I wanna be one of the five. If we get seven, eight, or 10, we're going with it, okay? And, and I'll be working with you. I'll, I'll help you get ready for the whole thing. I'm gonna lead a group. I'm, this will be the first group I've ever led, first life group I've ever led in the history of Destiny Church because I just didn't want to lead one. I just, you know, I've been in one several times, but I've never led one. This will be the first time I'm doing that because I think it's just so important. But all, any of these groups are gonna be powerful. And guys, I want you to get in it. I want you to make a decision to follow God And I want you to come together with the body of Christ, determined to grow, to become a God kingdom man. And we'll watch and see what God wants to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. We do not want to have tragedies like the ones that we've talked about today. Tragedy in the Hudson or at AI. Mostly, we don't want a tragedy in our own home. But we want miracles. We want your blessings. We want to be a conduit of ministry to our families. We want want there to be a blessing transferred to our sons and blessing our daughters. I pray, Father, that you would build that in our hearts and in our lives. With your head bowed, your eyes closed. um, I want to take a moment. And this is for anybody in the room. Guys, ladies, especially guys, I want you to, I just want you to be really honest. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if, if, if you can't be a kingdom person because you haven't given your life to Jesus, you haven't said yes to him, then I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And I want you to just pray this prayer with me. And um, actually, I'm going to ask our whole church to pray this. And, And if you are wanting to invite Christ in your life, just mean this from the bottom of your heart. So let's all just pray together. Dear Jesus, let's say it out loud. Dear Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to come into my heart I accept your blood and the cross of Christ in my life. I pray that you would change me and make me a kingdom person. In Jesus' name, amen.